Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalms. Anybody want to hazard a guess where we're going to go to Psalms? 84. Thank you. Psalms 84, please go there. And we want to read about three verses in Psalms 84. And then we're going to go over to the book of Esther. Did some of you read the book of Esther in this last month? Okay, some of you have made that just a concerted effort to read Esther. It's not a whole lot of effort to get through that book. It's a flowing book. I find it a very interesting book. Uh, it's certainly not arduous for me to read it. And the book of Esther, we've been... I didn't want to make this a series on Esther. It was a series on worship. It was a series on how do we, how do we prepare ourselves to enter into the King of Kings' presence. It does require preparation. You just don't saunter in, saunter out, and think that it's all about you. It's about Him. And it's our relationship to our Lord. So this journey has been a journey in these last few weeks to bring a finale to a series that has been with us for the last five months. So a five-week series to finish up a five-month series on Reignite. God, our prayer has been, would you reignite the fire? Light the fire again. And the fire of passion, the fire of love. Uh, I don't know, there's, there's a cry going up, just a tiredness of being tired of, of lukewarm faith, of just grinding it out and, and having your life largely preoccupied with doubts and disbelief instead of faith and expectation. It doesn't have to be. So the series has been to ignite something, to go long enough. I don't think I've ever done something as long. It wasn't on a particular, it's on a subject, but it wasn't on a particular passage, but just really felt, uh, I knew when I started in, it was going to be at least two to three months, and then it was like, no, we have to stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. In order to form a habit, you have to stay some time. A habit of hunger, a habit of, of rearranging some things in our lives. So we've, in the last few weeks, talked of the text being Psalms 84, uh, it's a tremendous psalm. You have it there. You have it in your devices, your Bibles in front of you. It starts by saying, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And if you go down to verse 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Father, we, I make that my prayer. We'd like to make that our prayer. How lovely. How beautiful, how wonderful, all we long for, your dwelling place. We long to have entered into the courts of praise and thanksgiving. 
that we might progress to the throne of worship. Oh, that we would behold you, not as a distant deity, not as a God who is removed, but one who says, I call you my friend. One who will, who will lower his scepter and say, come into my presence. Lord, as we sang earlier, draw me close to you, never let me go. God, as there's that invitation to come, Lord, we do not want to stay in the outer fringes of your presence. God, there's a stir in the hearts of people around the world, I know. But I believe there's a stir in the hearts of people here in this community. Oh God, that's not enough. Lord, we hunger to know you and be known by you in a deeper way. We hunger to engage. We hunger to experience what has been once experienced before. We long for that. And so God, I pray that as we have spoken this, that this be part of our own heart's cry this morning before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Esther chapter 3, verse 1, if you would take it, turn there, Esther chapter 3, verse 1, the story of Esther, if you haven't read it, I invite you to read it this week. This coming Sunday is in the Christian calendar, Pentecost Sunday. Next Sunday, the 28th, is called Pentecost Sunday, 50 days past Easter. It's a tradition a festivity that has been celebrated in Israel, the Jewish people having celebrated it uh, far back thousands of years ago. And they continue to in some areas in the Orthodox Jews, but the day of Pentecost, Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2, you really see it come to fruition because on the day of Pentecost, something took place, which was a release of the power of the Spirit of God that was not meant for a moment in time. It was meant to be in the age of the church age in which you and I live. The church age. And we would be able to see fulfilled Acts chapter 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be witnesses. You will be. Why? Where does that come from? It comes, it's an outflow of his power of his spirit at work. You can't work it up. You can't pretend it. You can't strategize it. Right? It's not a policy procedure. It's an empowering of his Holy Spirit. And there's been a cry in the heart, oh God, empower me, empower me. Uh, not for power's sake, but that I would be bold to share Jesus. The good news would go forth. And we would see, as has been seen, signs and wonders as God desires to do this. Our hearts, so that people will know that God reigns. He is Lord. So go with me to Esther chapter 3. We're going to read first two verses. The story of Esther has been a parallel story, a story of a person who pursued the king. And the picture is one of deliverance, but it's also a picture of how I can prepare myself for the king. And Esther chapter 3, again, this is the last, if I'm not going to review because you can always go back. It's on the website. Go to auroracornerstone.ca. You can get it's on the website in podcast form or YouTube form, and you can go back to the previous ones. I do encourage you today. Um, there was a QR code. There will be a QR code. You might want. There's. I'm going to close this whole series with nine observations, and the nine observations. You might want those nine observations. You're going to come back. Somebody's going to come back. I know and going to say, "Man, I wish 
I had written that down or got the QR code. So just if you get it ahead of time, great. If not, quickly scribble it down. Uh, there's uh, those um, information notes. You can grab it in the seat in front, pens in front. But I want to give, there's going to be nine observations that I'm summarizing really this whole, this whole number of months in these nine observations this morning. I pick it up today in Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, the events of the whole preparation, chapter 1, chapter 2, she prepared herself to meet with the king. It's all about the preparation. After these events, she had won the heart of the king. We talked about that last week. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agitite, elevated him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials of the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Mordecai is the older cousin of Esther who took her under his wings when her parents were gone, raised her in the fear of the Lord, and raised her with believing that she could make a difference. And she did. She would. I wanted, did you note that verse 3? After the events, Xerxes honored Haman. Everybody say Haman. The story today is around Haman. Enter Haman to our story. Who is Haman? I want to make observation number one. Observation number one. Whenever God gets ready to elevate you, he must first introduce an enemy. Whenever God is ready to elevate you, he must first introduce an enemy. We want to be enemy free. Enemy free is not good for us. Now, the enemy is not necessarily good for us either. But what the enemy will do, what the challenge that you face, the challenge is not big enough and significant enough to sink you. It's what now God is about to prepare in you in the midst of your challenge. That's what we keep our eyes on. Whenever God gets ready to elevate you, he must first introduce an enemy. I want to suggest even one more point. The more important your future, the greater your opponent. Some of you must be thinking, man, I must have a great future. Because I got some big, ugly opponents in front of me right now. Yes. I'm just going to say yes. It's true. The lesson here played out... In the life, we see it in multiple leaders in the Bible. We see this principle in Moses and Pharaoh. In order for Moses to be the great man, leader, and deliverer, he introduces Pharaoh. In order for Elijah to be the great prophet that would raise those from the dead and would call fire down from heaven, in order for him to be the great prophet, introduce Jezebel. In order for Daniel, in the book of Daniel... To be the man who would turn the heart of a people back out of exile into the land of promise. Introduce Nebuchadnezzar. God will introduce an enemy. Something that seems formidable to you. Impassable, impossible. He will bring an enemy. As we learned in David and Goliath, there's another illustration. In order to elevate David, he needs Goliath. In order to bring you to a place where God could use you for the purpose that you were created for, we all 
for the purpose we were created for, introduced there's an enemy. There's something, and it might be multiplicities, but there is that which will cause you to have to move beyond what you are seeing in front of you. Happens. And it's true with the story of Esther. The story of Esther has been coasting until we get to chapter 3. But chapter 3 is the point of the story. Everything has been in prep for chapter 3. Everything is, in, is ready now for chapter 3. Brings me, I mean, when we learn the story of even David and Goliath, if we can take some things home in that story, bring me to observation number two. Here it is. Never let the size of your enemy, the massiveness of his strength, or the volume of his threats intimidate you. Never let the size of your enemy, it's impossible. Hmm. Or the massiveness of his strength or the volume of his threats intimidate you. As in the story of David, if you know that story, you need to instead do what you've always done, sling what you've always slung. You need to already come into it ready. Because if you face your enemy unready, it's a little late. So the preparation is getting you ready to face that formative foe in front of you. I mean, somebody once said, with writing the story of David and Goliath, every boy stands taller than a fallen giant. Every boy stands taller than a fallen giant. Observation number three. Battles are not won on the basis of your strength or your enemy's size, but on your basis, but on the basis of, on what? Your relationship with God. Battles are not won on the basis of your strength. It's not won on the basis of the size of your enemy. Battles are won on the basis of your relationship to God. We're coming back. This is the story. This is the story. So don't fear your enemies, no matter what size they appear to be this morning. Love your God. He's the biggest. And if we've been saying anything, we need to get our eyes off the situation. We need to get our eyes off what's going on. And we need to get our eyes onto the Lord. And that's not simply a phrase. That is a posture and a lifestyle. I go after him in praise and worship. I seek him. You can't do that occasionally. That's not getting your eyes on him. That's getting your eyes on you and occasionally throwing him in the closet. Putting him in the trunk maybe for a ride. But no, he needs to move in the driver's seat and everything is about him where he's going. You're with him. And there becomes that passionate pursuit of him. Again, the focus of this whole thing, God, reignite a fire in us. The embers need to catch fire again. Because if they don't, then the battle will not be the Lord's. It's not his problem. It's been, I've been pursuing other things to try to defeat the enemy. And the only thing that defeats the enemy is him. So don't focus on that. Focus on him. Because when the time is right, when the time is right, you'll see it all come to place. So battles are not won on the basis of your strength or your enemy's size, but on the basis of your relationship with God. Don't fear your enemies no matter what size they appear to be. Love your God. He's the biggest. So back to Esther. So Esther, meet your Haman. It's your enemy. With one announcement, King Xerxes in chapter 3 promotes Haman to the highest office under his throne, the prime minister. With one word, he's there. He's the right-hand man. And prime minister Haman's shadow suddenly looms large over the entire empire. 
in which every Jewish person now lives under that shadow of his empire. The problem is, is he hates the Jews. And he is next to the king. He has authority and position to enact pain. He has authority and position. And verse 1 says, Haman was an Agagite. Now I'm going to, it, it, we go back to, can we go back to uh, that scripture again, Esther 3, 1. After these things, King Xerxes honored Haman's son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The Agagite. Okay, now I need to mention a little bit about Agagite here because this is important. Let's give a bit of a history lesson of the Agagites. We go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 8. We see the first Agagite in the Bible. Uh, so they didn't just show up here in Esther. They go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, hundreds of years prior. He was an Agagite ruler who was harassing Israel when King Saul, King Saul was the first king, was anointed the nation's first king. Agagite was a ruler, and he, right from get-go, hated the Hebrew people. The Amalekites under Agag perpetrated vicious guerrilla warfare on Israel for generation after generation, killing off wives, children, men for generation upon generation. They were a sole enemy because they continued to attack when you were least expecting them. They were ruthless, the Agagites. They committed such atrocities, had, mo had so many opportunities to turn back and committed such atrocities that God, if you go back to Samuel, God commanded King Saul to totally destroy them, including their king Agag. They all got to go. All of them. The king, the livestock, the whole thing has got to go. But instead, Saul chose to please the people rather than obey God. You read the story Saul spares the, Al the Amalekite king, Agag, along with the best of the Amalekite livestock. Kind of an interesting story. And then you read as we get to the end of chapter 15, towards the 1 Samuel 15, 16, when the prophet Samuel confronts Saul based on what just happened. Remember, he told, God spoke to Samuel to tell Saul that the they all got to go, and God gave them into their hands, but Saul chose to disobey and do it his own way. He saved the life of Agag, and he saved some of the livestock. When Samuel comes to him and confronts him, when he confronts him, Saul comes up with this crazy old excuse, but the prophet loses it on him. You see this anger in the story, like he blows it. He just blows off. On King Saul, I mean, you don't really want to do that, but he is the prophet. So he blows off on the King Saul because, because, listen, because he's a prophet and he can see what's coming. Okay, you, you following here? The reason he loses it is not because he's a short-tempered man. The reason he loses it because something could have been averted here, but it's not because you chose to go against God. Happens today all the time. When I choose and pick and choose to obey or not to obey, there are maybe prophets in the land who just like, what is going on? You just unleashed something by disobedience. 
And the story of 1 Kings 15 is a story where Samuel loses it on Saul. And then Samuel, who's a prophet, this, he's not a warrior, he's a prophet. Samuel goes and he takes Agag out himself. But in the time between, descendants are born. Descendants are born. And the descendants would continue to live right on down to the time of Esther. King Saul, guess who actually took his life at the end? Agagite. One of the descendants actually killed King Saul later on. He needed to have obeyed, but he didn't. He chose to do it his way. Okay, that's history. So we slide into chapter 3 of Esther. Now we're understanding a little bit better. And it brings me to my observation number 4. What you do not eradicate when you are strong will come back to attack you when you are weak. What Saul didn't deal with in his early reign would later plague David and Israel all their lives. And now, generations after David, Esther is forced to deal with an Amalekite. Here's Haman, a descendant of Agag. Brings me to observation number five. Deal with your enemy now or your children will have to face your enemy tomorrow. wonder why our children are facing stuff. Don't blame it on that generation. It's not their fault. It's not the millennials' fault. It's not the X generation fault. It's not the generation Z fault and the ones that fall. No. Deal with your enemy now or your children will have to face your enemy tomorrow. Something I think we can learn from the story here is that you can never become who you're supposed to be without a victory, and there is no victory without a battle. You are in a battle. And so we move into the story. In my Bible, the subtitle to this chapter, chapter 3, my subtitle says, Haman's plot to destroy the Jews is what my Bible says as a subtitle. Haman, a descendant of Agag, sets in motion a diabolical plan to annihilate the people of God. You read it in the story of Esther. Time has passed. Esther's not been invited into the king's presence for some time now. You don't just walk into the king. He's the king of Persia, which means he's the king of over 23 nations. His, his, his reign is huge. Okay, He is the superpower. There is no one near it. He's the superpower of the day. And you just don't saunter into the king's presence. You just don't go in. She has not been invited for some time. You only come by invitation. So somewhere, Esther has to change the heart of the king because an edict has gone out that has been forced upon the nation, upon the nations, to annihilate the Jews. It's about to take place. Time is ticking down, and they're going to be wiped out. A great battle is going to take place. The Jews will be eradicated. She has to get to the king, but he's not invited her. To do, wander into his presence would be a death wish. He would need to extend his scepter of kingly favor. Only that, only that will save her if she moves into his presence. Observation number six is this. Sometimes you must risk everything to become the very thing you're supposed to be. Sometimes you must risk everything to be the very thing you are supposed to be. And so we come to that famous quote in Esther, probably the most famous quote in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. The now quote that her cousin Mordecai makes to Esther because she's oscillating. I don't know if I should go in because if I go in, my life would be taken if he doesn't accept me. 
And Mordecai says very frankly to her, he says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So how do you accomplish this? How do you sway the king? How do you turn this moment? And again, remember Esther is a picture of our approach to the Heavenly Father. How do we stir the heart of our King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Well, Esther in the story, I'm going to suggest, don't go for the head, go for the heart. She knew just the right color of dress to wear. Just the right fragrance would do the trick. Remember we talked a couple of weeks ago that she didn't simply learn to live in opulence to approach the king. She studied under Haggai, who was the eunuch before the king into the inner chambers of the, the chamberlain of the king. She studied under him, and she knew exactly what serves the heart of the king. Not in a manipulation, but in understanding the heart of a king. And she won the heart by understanding that. She didn't live in the opulence offered all the other women of the day. She lived to serve the king. She knew the heart of the king. And church, I must suggest that we need to resort to the proven weapons of battle. She did that day. She went to the proven weapons of battle. She knew what was that which stirred the king's heart. King David in 1 Samuel 17 also knew very well how to remain with the familiar weapons. If you remember the story of David and Goliath, you know the story that when it came time to fight Goliath, the weaponry of someone else doesn't work. He had to take it off. It didn't fit right. He wasn't familiar, the Bible says, with it. He was familiar with one weapon. It was the weapon he learned out in the shepherd field. It was a sling and some stones. That he was familiar with. He needed to stay with the weapons that work. So Esther needed to get to the presence of the king. You just don't do it. She prayed. She fasted. And on the third day, her preparations were complete. It was time to throw herself at the mercy of the king if he would extend his favor. We pick it up in Esther chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. That's what needed to happen. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now, I've noticed something in the story here, this whole story of Esther. I've noticed that most of her battles up until now were all waged outside the king's courts. The battles of preparation, of years of preparation, the myrrh, the frankincense, the preparation of making herself attractive to the king was all done. All those battles took place outside the palace, outside the courts of the king. And most of our battles are. It's in the place of prayer. It's in the place of our, you know, face down before God, that place of fasting. That is the hard places. You don't feel it. You don't see it. You don't sense it. It's out there. It's in the dry and barren land, but you press through. You press through. You press through. It's in the outer court. You're nowhere near yet the king. 
It's outside. But listen, once she got inside the courts, the battle was virtually over. Beloved, much of the battle takes place in the hard, dry, and barren lands. But when you move into the sense of his presence, to the power of his praise and worship, and you are welcomed in his presence, virtually the battle's over now. You're in the presence of the king. You have everything you need to see victory, but the real battle takes place just to get there, and most don't make it there. I shared when I did the story of the tabernacle. Most people, you see pictures of the tabernacle? Go on the internet, you can see pictures of how they portray the tabernacle of the story of Exodus and Leviticus and stuff. You see the outer court, you see the inner court, you see the Holy of Holies. Nobody gets to the Holy of Holies, but the high priest once a year, and priests only according to their priestly duty would get to the inner courts and that was after you went through the gate of salvation into the place of cleansing and into the place where you place of altar the the forgiveness of sins and and the altar the brazen altar then you move into the inner courts. but people that's where they congregate they we don't tend to get to the inner courts very often just in our own lives we don't press through We, we we sing a little we sing a little longer we sing right and then we quit (laughs) <laughs> you know, we pray, we do devotions, we, but then we move on to, I wonder who's, who's on, you know, click, click, click. I wonder what I can do. I got to do yard. I've got to boom, boom, boom. Things are happening. Life is taking place. And on we move. We content ourselves in the outer court. It takes a lot of work to get to the inner court. It takes submission, self-denial, taking up your cross to follow him. That's why the Bible says narrow is the road that leads there because most don't want it. Most don't have time for it. Content ourselves with the other. And then we wonder where he is. <laughs> and we're filled and plagued with doubts and disbeliefs over here because we have not really beheld him yet. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit's not with us. Okay, don't mis- mistake that. But there is a place, there's a preparation to know him. You study the life of Jesus. You study somebody who... When he lived in flesh, he frequently pursued God's presence. So much so that the disciples observing power in that would say, teach us how to do that, Lord. Teach us how to pray. Teach us how you do that. Because we see when you come out of that, things happen. And it's not happening with us. Teach us, Lord. So, it is interesting that most of Esther's battles up until now were waged outside the king's court, but once she gets inside the inner courts, the battle's virtually over. Again, I come back to Psalms 84, verse 10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand. Listen, we can spend all our life in the outer courts, out, out there, but better, once I get one day in here, the battle, I can see the victory. But I got to get into the courts of the king to see it. So we pick it up, chapter 5, verse 3. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given you. Verse 4, if it pleases the king, replied Esther. Let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for them. Let me just pause there. Did you note back in verse 3? I'll give you half the kingdom, Esther. She was granted up to half the kingdom. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. Half the kingdom. But you see, in Esther's mind, why settle for half a kingdom when you can have the heart of the king? 
Sometimes we settle for what he will do for us instead of him. You see, if it was anybody else of lesser, they would have said, Yahoo, and gone out and enjoyed half the kingdom. Everything you could ever dream of is yours. Every, all those things that you want, they're yours. But no. Why take half a kingdom when the heart, you could have the heart of the king? Not in a malicious way, in a way of affection. It wasn't about things. She'd already determined that before she came the first time. It wasn't about things. Sometimes it is about things for us. It's about what he can do for us. If you have the king, the whole kingdom is at your disposal. Observation number seven. Esther teaches us to make our first petition a request for the king's presence. Move your needs, your wants, your fears behind you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And finish it for me. And all these things will be added. But seek first the king. Seek first the king. That's the place of worship. Seek first the king and his presence. Yeah, Matthew chapter 6, 3, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. I guess here's the point. It's at this place is where Esther will be able to defeat the enemy is when she is with all of the king, not just part of the kingdom. When she gets to the inner courts of the king, when she gets to that place where she is in the presence of the Holy One, then victory, then victory is yours. The point being, maybe don't fight your personal Haman in an argumentative mode, but lure him into the atmosphere of worship. She didn't just want to be in the king's presence. She needed her enemy there too. Hmm. She invited Haman back, the king's presence. Fight your enemy on familiar territory, not on his David in Psalms 23 says, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Observation number eight. If you can learn to worship while the enemy sits across from you at the same table, if you can learn to pay such close attention to the king that you forget about the enemy staring you in your face, seeking to intimidate you, you win. Going to say that again. If you can learn to worship while the enemy sits across from you at the same table, and if you can learn to pay such close attention to the king instead of the enemy who's staring you down, you will win. What happens is we get distracted and intimidated. We focus back to the whatever the problems are instead of pressing into the heart of him to worship him even more. Sing a little louder. Press in a little farther. I go deeper, I go deeper, I go deeper. I, not, it's not about just the things. I'm not just focusing on them. I'm going after the king. I'm going after the king. Haman thinks all is pretty terrific at this part of the story. <laughs> Through twists and turns as the story unfolds, this true story escalates into Haman building a 75-foot pole to impale Esther's cousin Mordecai on it because he just hates the Jews and he really hates Mordecai as a man of God. So Haman is already set in motion for the annihilation and to wipe out God's people. 
What about the king that night? Remember, he's invited Esther. He extended the scepter. She came in. He says, he so, he so stirred her heart. He says, I'll give you half the kingdom. He just doesn't do that over. Like, that's big. Most people would take it. She says, no, no, I don't want half the kingdom. I asked for one thing. Can, can we come back tomorrow? Let's have dinner. Can Haman come too? Hmm. Wow. Strangest request. And that night, did you see that? Esther chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king couldn't sleep. Hmm. Ooh, I like this story. Something about her presence had so stirred his heart, he couldn't get to sleep that night. He couldn't sleep. We aren't told anymore, except we're told that night he couldn't sleep. I don't know if you've ever needed one of those that's nights in your life. <laughs> a life-changing moment. That night, it started to change. That night, a point where things were going wrong. Now they begin to turn around. Now they begin to turn around. And here's the secret. The secret was Esther's worship. The secret was her presence before the king. She waits on him. She takes her time. She doesn't rush. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Those that wait upon the Lord. She's not going to rush. She takes her time. There's a proper time. She waits in the presence. You know, sometimes we're so impatient. We need it. We need it now. We need it. We need it now, right? We're in an instant time. But you can't rush this. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, they waited days on end, wondering when, what, where, what's happening. Those that wait upon the Lord, just wait. Lord, I, I, I don't know what's happening, but my eyes are on you. I just, I continue to press into you. I continue to press into you. Her posture was one of waiting. Night goes by, and in that time of waiting, something's happening. The king can't sleep. King can't sleep. Which brings me to observation number nine. Indulgent worship creates a sleepless king. Single-hearted worship is what God longs for. To know you love him. So the king couldn't sleep. So what does a king do when he doesn't sleep? Well, this, this king anyway, Esther chapter 6. Let's pick it up. Let's read the story. Verse 1. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. He probably thought this would lift him up, make him happy, make him go back to sleep. Verse 2. It was found, recorded, that Mordecai had exposed... Bethana and Teresh, the two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, and if you remember the story earlier, they had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai heard about it, sent word through Esther, got it to the king. The king was able to stop an assassination plot. This is what verse 2 is about. Verse 3. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. Okay, let's pause here for a second. So the king can't sleep. She stirred his heart, so he checks the records. It's here the king realizes that a man who had literally risked all to save his life had gone totally unrewarded. So once King Xerxes discovers this oversight, he immediately sets a plan in place to give Mordecai a reward. This is all in the middle of the night. While 
He is doing this. Enemy Haman, Haman comes in. While he is setting this in place, Haman comes in, and the king asks Haman what to do with someone who deserves the greatest of rewards. Because the king's fresh out of ideas. Haman, in his vanity, thought the king's speaking of him. That's a great story. So he quickly comes up with an idea. Esther chapter 6, verse 8. This is Haman's idea. Because he's thinking of who? Him. Verse 8. Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Now, I want to go back in the story. There's something that we need to see. Go back, verse 8. Have them bring him a royal robe the king has worn, horse the king has ridden, royal crest of the king on his head, and the king's noblest to lead him. What's he saying? I want to be king. Do you see that? Can't miss this one. Okay, let's do it again. Verse 8, have them bring the, no one wears the royal robe but the king. Do you see what he asked for? No one rides the king's horse but the king. Tracking? And no one wears the crest, that's the king's crest, no one. The queen, no one. His sons, no one. And no one travels in front proclaiming except the king's very noblest of men. What is Haman asking for? Haman is saying, I want to be king. You need to hear it. And doesn't this sound like an old story found in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 of someone by the name of Lucifer who wanted to take the position of God? I will rise up and sit on the throne. Lucifer to take the position of God. Sounds just like him if, it asks, if you ask me. So he makes this request thinking it was about him. King Xerxes loved the idea and had Haman, here's the twist, lead Mordecai through the streets as a prince. Okay, that's just hilarious. It's just hilarious. We move on. Second banquet night. Second banquet night. She has continued to turn down half the kingdom because the timing wasn't right. Those that wait upon the Lord. Those that wait upon the Lord. Esther chapter 7 Verse 3, this is where Esther exposes everything. Verse 3, then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as a male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing you, my king. But verse 5, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where's the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Queen Esther says, and I could picture the story she's pointing, because he's there at the table. Your enemy's sitting at the table. She's pointing. The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. She points at him. 
Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Verse 7. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate. You know when his fate was decided? When Esther got into the inner courts. When you get into the inner courts, the fate's already there. If you get into the presence of him, it's already just a matter of time. It had already been determined. Note this. Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Whoa, she hit, she hit hard. Only that morning, Haman left home dressed in his best, thinking this was his day. Chapter 7, verse 8. Let's keep going. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, Gallows, 75 feet high, stand by Haman's house. Haman had them made the night before. He had it made for Mordecai, who had spoken up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows. He had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how she was related, how he was related to her. Verse 2, the king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, Haman's dead, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Whoa, what a story. Now, if we slip down to chapter 9, chapter 9, it's not over. We see Esther suggested the king to allow the Jews to fight, and all the sons of Haman are hung from the gallows. All the sons are, when the king asks, what more do you want? Our reply needs to be complete victory over the enemy. If it had happened back with Saul, it wouldn't have been happening here today. But now it's time to do what Saul needed to have done back then. Complete obedience to him. Listen, God will give you an extra day to finish what you start. And at last, Haman's line was eradicated. I want to draw these nine points. We close with these. It's a great story, is it not? Observation number one. Whenever God gets ready to elevate you, he must introduce your enemy. The more important your future, the greater your opponent. Never let the size of your enemy, the massiveness of his strength or the volume of his threats intimidate you. Battles are not won on the basis of your strength or your enemy's size, but on the basis of your relationship to God. What you do not eradicate when you are strong will come back to attack you when you are weak. Deal with your enemy now or your children will have to face your enemy tomorrow when they are. Sometimes you must risk everything to become the very thing you were supposed to be. Esther teaches us to make our first petition, our first petition a request for his presence. And if you can learn to worship while the enemy sits across from you at your same table, if you can learn to pay such close attention to the king that you forget about the enemy staring you in the face, you win. You win. And indulgent worship creates a sleepless king.
Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.